You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, his co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl, as well as being a former Watergate special prosecutor. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins, which today honors it is a zombie, and that's because that is part of the name of his newest book. Um, With each day that passes, it is becoming more apparent that the goal of Republicans isn't to represent the American people or even all Republican voters, but instead just to stay in power and to represent the loudest, most conservative members of their um, primary voters. A case in point is what we just saw about the passage of a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package with no Republican support, despite the fact that 75% of all Americans, including Republicans, support this bill. This raises multiple questions that we hope to discuss with our guests today and try to find out what we can do to communicate why they are doing this despite the best interests of their constituents and why they care little about facts and truth. That also raises how we get individuals to understand facts and economics and the media's role in communicating facts. Uh, These are questions that no one better can answer than our guest today, Paul Krugman, famed economist, New York Times columnist, Nobel Prize winner in economics, and author of a book Jill and I found fascinating, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and a Fight for a Better Future. Uh, Paul has written or edited 27 books and more than 200 papers in professional journals. He has also founded The New Trade Theory, a major rethinking of international trade. He has a PhD from MIT and has taught at Yale, MIT, Stanford, and is currently a professor uh, emeritus at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School and a distinguished professor at City University of New York. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Paul. It's an honor, and we are looking forward to this conversation. Okay, well, um, it should be fun. Um, Okay, safe safe from the zombies. Let's let's start with talking about zombies. And as a novice author, I'm always interested how experienced authors like you approach writing. And in this case, your book is a collection of essays that you wrote for the New York Times and other publications that you somehow seamlessly wove into a book that conveys an underlying theme about our current political climate, particularly the economic issues. So how how did you come to write the book in that way as a collection of essays and uh, how easy or hard was it for you to find essays from your past that would support the point you wanted to make? Yeah, I wrote it this way, I think partly because uh, (laughs) it's a little bit easier to put together a book uh, um, that collects a lot of past material. There is some new material than it is to write a from a standing start, uh, but also because I think having these essays as they were written in real time over the course of about uh, 15 years, um, they, uh, as various 
individual issues came and went gives you a little bit more, I think a little, a little more of a sense of, of what it was like to try and contend with stuff as it was happening or, or as it was trying to go wrong. Um, the thing is what I write, what I do for, you know, in my journalistic second career is not pound the pavement reporting. I'm not cultivating it in insider sources. I'm trying to do issues um, and I am constantly pursuing a set of issues that all relate some way to things I, I hope I know something about. Um, and the, so the, the columns themselves, the individual articles are actually thematic. They're usually, it, it's not that something came up in the news today and I'm just gonna write about it because everybody's talking about it. Uh, I certainly am influenced by the news, but there's always a background set of themes that I'm working on, a lot of which turn out to fall under these categories of zombie ideas that won't go away. So um, it was not actually, I mean, I did, there is this problem when you write two columns a week for, for 20 years, um, you, you fairly, you forget a lot of what you've written in the past, but it wasn't that hard actually to just go through and, and find things that, that could be assembled into a coherent narrative. Did you find in going through them that a lot of what you had written was what we would call evergreen, that it hadn't gone stale with the passage of time? And oh, that yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, that that's the thing is that we've have it, maybe it, it, the, the zombification of, of our politics helps because a lot of stuff is just frozen. I mean, the, well, what Republicans are saying about tax cuts and the, the horror of what, what will happen if you raise taxes uh, now is indistinguishable from what they were saying 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of these issues just come along now actual so some of the background changes, but a lot of things are, I mean, just, uh, it, there are not a whole lot of, of things I've written that just look hopelessly dated, at least over those past 20 years. And, but even given that, I understand that you did reformat the book um, for the, I guess, the new edition, the paperback edition, that you added more about COVID. Is that correct? Yeah. And so was that because there was a change in policy or just in the context? for the policies? Actually, both. Um, there was, first of all, there was in fact, uh, I, something we may, we may wanna talk about is the way um, COVID has brought some pretty dramatic policy changes um, uh, one way or another um, in, in ways that are beyond what I would have expected, I think. Um, it was also about providing context, but also the, although it was not quite the, Thing, you know, I, I, when I wrote about zombies, I wasn't expecting to actually live through the zombie apocalypse. But the um, the fact that is, is that the the, um, the the nature of the, the the way that that we dealt or failed to deal with COVID nineteen was very much in line with everything we've seen before. So you know, the uh, if if you talked about people not being willing to accept inconvenient facts, you wanted to talk about the attempt to squeeze everything into an ideological agenda, just watching the, COVID, uh, the you know, watching the Trump um, administration uh, trying to deny COVID. I mean, it, if, you, if you were accustomed to following climate change politics, mm-hmm. climate denial, then COVID denial was very recognizably the same, you know, pretty much the same thing. So do you wanna talk a little bit more about what you feel changed as a result of COVID in terms of economic policy? Yeah, the, 
so we let me say where so for once I've got a positive surprise. Um, obviously, we screwed up uh, terribly, um, in, and there are several hundred thousand people have died who didn't have to die, and uh, we uh, so that in in many ways it's it's been just horrific and things that you really wouldn't have believed. I, I mean, even I don't think would have been cynical enough to think that that wearing a mask would become a symbol of, uh, or refusing to wear a mask would become an, an identity symbol um, that basically, you know, kill people to prove that you're a, a real American. But uh, the economic response was far better than I would have expected. Um, there was we had a it it was a whole stop and go response, but we did in fact provide a lot of aid to people who are unemployed, we provide a lot of, of money to families. Um, so even, even with Trump still in the White House, it was as if uh, faced with a real crisis, the, the usual suspects kind of, in a way, they were just paralyzed. They couldn't, they, this just didn't fit any way that they knew how to do things. They, they effectively allowed the structure of the, of the economic relief program to be dictated by reasonable people, mostly Democrats. Um, and now uh, we've just had this extraordinary, you know, uh, again, a COVID relief bill from, from Joe Biden and the, the razor thin Democratic majority in Congress, which is uh, far more ambitious, more progressive than, uh, than I would have thought we were going to get. So uh, the, in a weird way, the, COVID has shown that there's still some possibility of, of doing the right thing. You know, I, I was gonna ask later, but um, let's pursue, cause you mentioned it now, is the 1.9 trillion yeah. has been viewed as way too big uh, by the opponents, which means the Republicans. And they're warning that inflation will result because we're putting all this money out to people, they'll spend it. And therefore there'll be a shortage of goods. And as a result, of course, prices will rise because that's what happens when supply is uh, diminished, prices go up. Um, do you think that that's what's going to happen? Do you think that this is the right number to be? Okay. It's a, it's actually, this is actually a slightly more complicated question than, than, than one might want. It um, concerns that it's a lot of money going out there uh, are not silly. And it's not just Republicans. There are, uh, you know, certainly perfectly reasonable uh, uh, Democratic-leading economists who are a little nervous. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some inflation from this. Uh, the the U.S. is a huge economy, has a lot of still unemployed workers, but still, you know, uh, 1.9 trillion here, 1.9 trillion there, and soon you're talking about real money, even for America. So this is a a, a big thing, and if it if it had been designed, if the only goal were to provide economic stimulus, um, then this would be too big a number. You could you could get enough to get us back to full employment while spending less, um, and which does raise the question: Are we you know, going to have some problems because we didn't because uh, we spent more? Uh, but it's not. The this is a bill that is, um, it's actually it, it's using the economics of, uh, of COVID, I mean, partly there, there are things we need to do. A lot of this is about, it's called the American Rescue Plan. And that's actually a good characterization. It's not a stimulus. It's, a, it's about getting people through the still very, very difficult times created by the pandemic. So a lot of it is things like aid, uh, like 
enhanced unemployment benefits, aid to state and local governments. Um, there's things in there that are not uh, the kinds of things economists would normally advocate, especially spend, sending everybody a $1,400 check. Um, that's justifiable um, uh, in terms of the economics by the fact that not everybody is going to, they're, they're going to, there are holes in the other things we're doing. And, and some of that money will, will, uh, uh, will make it to the, will refresh the parts that other policies can't reach. Um, but, and it, the saving grace in a way, if you're worried about inflation, is that quite a few people are just going to save their $1,400 checks. We're not going to get as much uh, excessive stimulus as you might have worried about otherwise. So it's, it, I'm not sure that there's a, uh, there's some magic, this calculation that would lead you to this exactly this size bill. But if you take a look at it and you say, okay, which parts of it would you say you don't want to do? Do you not, you know, do you not want to do those checks? Well, they're, they will help some people who need help. Uh, we can afford them and they're going to, and they're extremely popular. Uh, Democrats wouldn't control the Senate if they hadn't been able to campaign on those in Georgia. Uh, if we talk about uh, you know, the unemployment benefits, who, really, you, do you really want to cut back on that at a time when we still have, you know, when when we're still 10 million jobs down from pre-pandemic and, and so on down the line? So it, it's a it's a reasonable bill. Um, I think there's a, there's some chance that we'll have a there's a pretty good chance that we'll see an uptick in inflation over the next. Uh, uh, year. Um, yeah, the chance that it will become a, a more enduring problem is way less than that. And I'd, mm -hmm. I, I, have a, I have to say, I think a lot of economists and public people still are still stuck in the, in the 70s. You know, it, it's uh, <laughs> uh, bell-bottom pants and, uh, and sustained inflation are both probably not coming back. Mm. I certainly hope not for both of those. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah. Your earliest contributions to economics weren't as a pundit, but rather as an academic and a professor. In fact, at the opening of your book, you write, um, punditry was never part of the plan, but then you end up in punditry. So I'm, I'm wondering what it was like for you to go from being a professor at you know leading institutions of the world into the world of punditry. Okay, I had, um, fortunately, it wasn't a sudden transition. Um, it was, uh, you know, I started... Um, I started doing um, occasional writing for a somewhat broader audience as far back as the 80s. Uh, started writing occasional things for, I was going to say, you know, uh, 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 public uh, journals like Foreign Affairs, which um, obviously Foreign Affairs wouldn't seem to most people like you know, kind of slumming it, but it's uh, but relative to the abstruseness of economics journals, it is kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was writing columns for Slate and for Fortune for some years. So I sort of got into this, but it's still, it's a, when it becomes a large part of your job, then you, you really need to, you need to learn to, to think about how it is that you communicate with people who are intelligent, but not specialists. And um, I, I think I, I, some of my earliest columns really were, I was trying to pack too much in, but um, you, you know, you just, it, it's, it's a, it, and of course the big question would for, you would ask as well, you're, you know, you're a professor and you're um, now you're entering the world of journalism where people are expected to write fast and how are you, how am I going to handle on that? And uh, I was always a, a fast writer as an academic. 
the question was, well, how would I stack up in this new world? And the answer was to, to my shock, turns out I'm fast by journalist standards as well. So <laughs> I, can, I, can do, I can handle it, at least in terms of the mechanics of the process. Right. And that's, I think, explains a lot about your, not only your high quality work, but you know, the number of um, columns that you put out now on a weekly basis for the New York Times. And you know, part of this transition, I'm wondering, was, it, it, was the switch from, I guess the, I guess the transition from academia into um, more kind of opinion columnists, was that kind of uh, a decision because you wanted to communicate and influence more people or educate the public on some of what's going on? Like, what was the reasoning behind um, you going into um, writing these pieces for the um, better known publications? Um, it was partly that I felt that I wanted to communicate more broadly. And um, th- I mean, a lot of it was, it, I was hoping to, to reach more than the, uh, the academic literature can not not which is not at all to denigrate obviously it's my home was was doing academic research and let's also let's be let's be honest there is a, a bit of a life cycle um, issue if you're uh, uh, if if you what you do is is research or particularly if what you do tends to be uh, largely theoretical research which uh, I, I was always trying to de- to respond to facts about the world but but uh, was my contribution in my pre-journalistic days tended to be models that made uh, that typically mathematical models that made sense of what we were seeing. Um, you get if if you if that's if you keep on doing that your entire life and nothing else, then you I think you do tend to get stale. You tend to mm-hmm. the the ruts in your brain get too deep, and so it's it's a good idea in general to to do something different as it turned out writing for a broader audience was something that the opportunity came along i enjoyed it i felt i was doing some good and so there we are you definitely did and and you know all of those essays are compiled into your book um arguing uh with zombies and that got my attention the title of your book but you know for someone who may be scanning a book online or in a bookstore when um, they were open and when, you know, hopefully we can go back to bookstores when it's safe, it it might strike as a sci-fi book. But to be clear, you have explained the concepts of zombies as ideas and policies that should have been killed by contrary evidence, but instead keep shambling along, eating people's brains. Was this something that you noticed while you were a professor, or was this something that you started to pick up once you became um, a thoughtful and thought-provoking columnist? Okay, it's a very much a, an ongoing evolution. It becomes much more obvious once you're writing for the broader audience and you start <laughs> to have a better sense of what's actually uh, driving policy, but long before. I mean, uh, um, the oldest essay in Arguing with Zombies is a um, is a an essay I wrote for the American Prospect in, on income inequality for in 1992. Uh, and uh, so that was a, a venture into more policy, political writing. And even then it was obvious that the people who were uh, denying that inequality was rising or insisting that it did no harm uh, were trotting out repeatedly things, arguments that were provably wrong. But that didn't stop them from coming out. And one of the things is that that's that's a 1992 essay, and it's um, it hasn't dated much because the same zombie arguments are still being deployed on the subject of inequality today. So mm-hmm. it, you, if you're at all engaged with public policy, you can't help but notice that an awful lot of the the discussion of the arguments about public policy are not 
are are zombie arguments. They are things that that it's it's not that there are really two sides, though. It's not that there's really a a case that is grounded in anything except prejudice uh, for the for for a lot of these ideas. They just are ideas that uh, keep shambling along because they serve some purpose. And your description of zombies aptly illustrates many of the ideas or maybe the lack of ideas coming from elected officials. And it seems like you were suggesting that the zombie ideas came before Trump. But to me, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is Newt Gingrich's kind of contract with America, which totally ignored economics and then led to the decline of a sane, fact-based Republican Party. Does it go further than that, um, this idea of zombie ideas? Oh, sure. In fact, that first that, that essay about inequality was actually responding to nonsense arguments uh, from uh, officials in the uh, elder Bush administration uh, there who were trying to deny that inequality was rising, even though it clearly was. Uh, there was an awful lot of zombie stuff already in the Reagan years. Uh, and so th- this is, it's, it's not new, but it's gotten more intense. In, you know, in, 19, in 1992, you could still have a discussion. Uh, we could do something. I mean, um, there, were, there were a lot of bad ideas floating around in the Bush one administration, but there were also serious environmental policies uh, that curbed acid rain. Um, there, by the late 1990s, you already have a lot of Newt Gingrich type craziness in the Republican Party. Um, by the George W. Bush, you know, it's just, I mean, one of the magic talents of, of the modern GOP is that each successive Republican president manages to make his predecessor look good. Uh, but the, uh, um, but so it, it, it has intensified. But it's it really does go back. You really should if you if you were uh, if you were actually watching discussions during the Reagan years, even then it was how can people be saying this this nonsense? Mm-hmm. It's just that the nonsense just gets more nonsensical over time. Yeah, it, it seems to me that the ignorance of facts, truth, and even reality has been festering within the P- Republican Party for quite some time. And as a result of Trump, it attracted more people from the extreme edges, which explains a lot of the uh, volume of conspiracy theories out there. Is this something that you also see on the Democratic side, or is this something that pretty much happens on the Republican side um, only? Yeah, I mean, there's always, there's some of this always. Um, there are There are always going to be uh, nonsense views. I mean, we could go, I mean, I, uh, there are, there are some issues where a lot of, I'm afraid liberals are, get it wrong, like, like house zoning and, and, and housing affordability. And you can see that it's perfectly possible for, for bad ideas to take root and be hard to dislodge on the left as well as the right. I think the point is that in America in the 21st century, uh, the power behind bad ideas is just vastly greater on the right. So, you know, if we were in Venezuela, and we, I'm sure I would be finding plenty of really bad ideas coming from the left that had deleterious influence. Uh, in America in, in 2021, we just don't, it, there are those people. There, there are certainly some unreasonable people on the left, but they're, but they're not in power. And what's, I mean, what's what I always, I mean, it's kind of contemporary stuff. You look at the people who are treated as being like the extreme left of the Democratic Party, uh, like AOC. Um, And she may don't agree with everything she says, but she's not at all 
uh, outlandish in her statements. There, so there, the point is that there, there is no democratic side counterpart to the to the crazies who actually are often dominant on the right. Your book um, takes us through in a very clear way how conservatives have relentlessly misled and misguided the public on various economic policies and social security, Obamacare, tax cuts. Um, can you maybe give some more examples of how Republicans have done so? And, and I want to also relate it to something you said, which is, you know, the, the nonsense keeps getting repeated over and over again. And um, how do we combat that? How can um, mainstream media like the New York Times communicate to the people who are listening to Fox News so that people understand that what they're hearing is nonsense? Okay. So there are different, I mean, there, there's multiple questions in there. So one, I mean, there, there are uh, of, of the, probably the, the most, you know, the, in, in terms of, of the U.S. political scene, the most persistent uh, zombie idea that, that continues to warp politics is, is just the belief in the, in the magic of tax cuts. And that's kind of the, in terms of the political scene, that's the zombie supreme of, of, of American politics. Uh, in terms of what the most frightening zombie, it's climate denial. They, and the you know, assistance for climate is not changing or it's not changing because of human intervention or there's nothing we can do about it or, you know, and that's, that's a existential threat, um, a zombie idea. Um, I'm not sure they, whether you can actually reach hardcore Fox News viewers or worse, you know, QAnon theorists. Um, I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure anyone does, but the, what is, where you can make a difference is on people who are not fully sunk in that, and particularly people who um, are uh, haven't grasped the difference between the, um, the the zombie ideas and and real arguments. Uh, and to uh, important, the, the news media are a very important part of of getting this right. Again, not Fox, which is. Is is in, is not in the business of conveying information, but something like the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, they can actually try to do the job of not. It, it's easy and seems safe to say you know, Republicans say this and Democrats say that, and instead to go and here, here let let's talk about what is what reality is. Uh, that's that can help a lot. So you make a lot of things very clear in very plain English, very readable in your book. But one of them is about Republicans really caring more about serving corporations and the top 1% and not caring about the poor and the fact that their policies hurt the poor, um, despite the fact that they keep saying they're for working families. Um, and Bernie Sanders, of course, has, and many other progressives, AOC, have echoed this, and it certainly resonates with Victor's generation. Um, Republicans argue that it isn't true, and they assert that they are for the working class. Um, and I would like to find out from you, is there any truth to the Republican argument that they are for the working class? Do they care at all about that group of people? Is any of their policies helping the people who are voting for them on that premise? 
Yeah, the, the answer is no, there, there, there's, there's no truth to that claim. And it's actually, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, it, uh, you mentioned it, I think, at the beginning, that the, uh, the, the Biden administration has uh, enacted a, a big relief plan, which is extremely popular. Even, uh, even majority of, of Republicans approve of it, uh, but it didn't get a single Republican vote in Congress. Um, there are some developments at the state level. I mean, the uh, state of Missouri, they had a referendum on expanding Medicaid, which is almost free because uh, under Obamacare, the federal government picks up the great bulk of the cost. Um, and the public in Missouri voted for it. And the Republican legislature has refused to provide funds for this thing, which is actually, it looks like there's a, that there's going to be a real problem with the Missouri state constitution. But in any case, the fact is that they hear something and, and Medicaid is something that uh, a lot of people on Medicaid are working class. Uh, most people on Medicaid are working in fact. Uh, and a lot of people who uh, are currently working and have some kind of health insurance are always at risk. And so they might need Medicaid. And so this is a working class policy, which happens to have overwhelming public approval. Um, so they, they really are not willing to do this at all. Now, what I have to say is that there's a puzzle. Um, the 15 years ago, there was, it was very clear what was happening with the Republican party. It was a party that was effectively controlled by uh, a group of wealthy donors and corporations and it served their interests. But what it did was to win elections by appealing to uh, cultural issues, racial hostility. So it was kind of reaching out. It had this kind of populism of, of, the, of the emotions while actually doing elitism of the, uh, of, of the policy. Uh, the Republican establishment has now lost control. The monsters it summoned up have taken over the party. It's all, um, it, it's no longer the case that that the, the, there's an inner circle of billionaire finance people who, who really get to control stuff. And instead everybody is, is bowing at the altar of Trumpism. Uh, but they haven't actually moved at all towards genuine populist economic policies. It's a little bit of a puzzle why, uh, why they won't do that. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to figure it out, but it is interesting to, that, I mean, the, the, the Olama, the, the you know, great, Great read, although the analysis I'm told by political scientists was a little bit flaky, but what's the matter with Kansas by Tom Frank um, about the you know, running, winning elections by being against gay marriage or, or ultimately a lot about race, uh, but then immediately turning after the election to, pub, uh, to policies that are, are, are all about enriching the already rich. Uh, that's not a good model of the party anymore because the, the, uh, the the, the bigots, uh, if you like, are, are now actually running the show, but the policies haven't changed much. So uh, what are the best answers to Republican arguments? Uh, is it just there's simply no support in economic uh, research? How, how do we get that across to people? Well, part of it is to just point to facts, to point to um, um, to. Um, not just research, but simple historical facts. You know, uh, uh, the governor of Kansas promised a miracle when he slashed taxes. Didn't happen. Instead, they ended up killing their education system. Um, part of it is, yeah, I mean, to the extent that people uh, are influenced by uh, 
by national media. The national media can and sometimes does draw on the research, but it's not usually very abstruse research, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Um, I think it's also, if I can say, I, I think there's a political issue here, which is one, one way to fight zombie ideas is to uh, actually enact good popular policies that, um, that can, can win people over. So it, there was a problem, um, I would say with Obama, uh, which was, although fine individual and, uh, and many thing, good things to say about it, but his administration intended to look for uh, subtle policy interventions. It was afraid of, of seeming to be too populist to, uh, to just you know, giving people money, whereas given the political realities, you have to just be do things that are really clear and, uh, and, and are popular. And we'll, we'll see whether that works. But that's, that seems to be what, what's happening now. You know, progressives have been calling on that very point that you just made. Progressives have been calling on moderate Democrats and even Biden to play hardball and to eliminate the filibuster, stop fooling themselves that they can work with Republicans and move more left on their economic policies, which you say in your book um, is something that the public is on board with that tougher strategy than many elected Democrats are. Uh, do, do you think that this argument from progressives has moved the new administration? Do you think they should be more aggressive with how they're approaching things right now? Well, they have actually turned out to be remarkably aggressive. Yeah. Again, the American Rescue Plan was uh, a, uh, a a really big deal, um, and it's uh, and and much more progressive than 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 anyone I think would have predicted uh, if you told them a year earlier that Joe Biden would be the president. Um, the uh, the other the, the I mean, there, there is a problem. I mean, the you do have Democrats who are still reluctant. Uh, to go all the way, and uh, the on the filibuster, I think, I mean, making the case for eliminating the filibuster is is very good. Demanding it, um, I, unfortunately, I think an across the board uh, elimination is not going to happen because you have no leeway. You just it just takes one Democratic senator who isn't willing to go along to stop it. Right? That's unfortunately how tight things are. Uh, but you can. Uh, I think there, there's a pretty good chance of getting um, specific um, areas of, of voting rights, uh, saying that we're not going to allow the filibuster to block uh, guarantees of voting rights. And you know, one of the things, the, how are we passing these big bills uh, with, uh, without uh, them being filibustered? And the answer is, well, there is a procedure, reconciliation that lets you do that. Uh, on fiscal matters only, so not everything can be covered by it. But and but that was available to Obama as well. He could have done his stimulus with reconciliation, but chose not to uh, because they thought they needed to try and build bipartisan support. And basically, what's happened is that even though the Democratic majority is much smaller than it was then, the uh, the party has learned something, and. Uh, so I don't know, you know, what, what, how it actually ends up working out, but what um, we are, people are talking a little bit about the, the mansion cycle, where he says, oh, I, I don't think we should do something without bipartisan support. I appeal to my Republican colleagues to, to join us in doing this. And then step by step, he, want, he, he ends up uh, voting for the Democratic agenda. So um, and that's, that's okay if that's what it takes. I mean, uh, 
just just messes with our brain even more. But I mean, this this idea of bipartisanship is something that's appealing to me and something that you know Biden clearly wants to run on and, and advocate. But I'm wondering just on from an economic view, when should bipartisanship be forsaken? And you know, do you think that Democrats should even work with Republicans when they won't even acknowledge reality and they continue to spew lies? Yeah. So you don't. Uh, you don't. I mean, bipartisanship, I've, I've never bought the idea that bipartisanship in and of itself has a value. I mean, there's something to be said for not ramming through policies that, are, um, that have a very narrow base of support. Uh, but if you have a situation like the one we have now, where there are policies that actually have quite broad support among the public, uh, but can't get any Republican votes, then you should just do them. Uh, there's is. The idea that we should be giving um, uh, giving a a political party veto power when it doesn't actually have the public behind it, and constitutionally doesn't have that power, uh, then I don't see why you, you would want to do that. And it it certainly helps in a way. It helps the case that uh, for for being aggressive that the uh, we aren't seeing any good faith outreach. I mean, it I, if. It's a funny thing, actually, if, if Republican moderates, uh, there aren't any really, but the, those who have a moderate affect uh, had proposed a relief package for, that was inadequate, but not grossly inadequate, they might have actually managed to force Biden into something much more, uh, you know, much more cautious than what he actually did. But the complete intransigence said, okay, but even even the the most moderate Democrats to say, well, you know, the heck with this. Uh, uh, we're not going to compromise on the basics. It's it's definitely a problem. And you know, Abraham Lincoln famously said, you know, public sentiment is everything. And it seems like I don't know, like public pressure. Do do you think that's even a possibility now with Republicans? Like does like we always say, Jill and I, we've we've made it a constant point to say, you know protest, you know, make sure that you make your voice heard. But does that even resonate with Republicans these days? Well, it's um, interest at the moment doesn't appear to be. I mean, at the moment, a uh, combination of, uh, I mean, there's, there's explicit deliberate gerrymandering, and there's also just an awful lot of sorting, geographic sorting. Uh, there's um, there's uh, uh, Inner city, you know, urban areas are are solid Democrat. Rural areas are solid Republican. There's some battleground in the suburbs, but most members of Congress don't face it. The only relevant challenge they face is the challenge of an internal primary, and uh, then you know, so so there. That's it's not clear that moving public opinion can get you that much uh, on on that front. And the yeah, I mean the. Uh, uh, it, it's not, well, it's just not at all clear what, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, there, there are, there are pot, if you can create sufficiently extreme cases, I mean, one of the things that a lot of us think is that this child tax credit that's part of the American Rescue Plan, although it's set to expire after two years, uh, that even Republicans might balk at saying to every family with two kids, okay, we're going to cut your income by $6,000. So, uh, but, uh, and, definitely make it heard because among other things don't want to allow the news media to uh, create uh, to 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 believe that there's consensus on things that there aren't consensus on so 
uh, I think it really is important. I think, and you do move, you, 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 move, you move the window uh, of, of what's possible by, by making your voice heard. You know, as someone who remembers bipartisanship and compromise and hearing that as a positive rather than compromise is terrible, it, it does trouble me that we've gotten to where we are. But I, I want to go back to something that I found fascinating about your book, um, something that you've said about how you approach a commentary, which is you said, stay with the easy stuff, write in English, um, and uh, be honest about the dishonesty, and don't be afraid to talk about motives. And I, I thought that was interesting. It's so hard to communicate to the public, um, particularly on complex economic or legal issues, but you seem to have found a way to communicate so that people can understand these complex ideas. Can you explain more about what you meant about those steps to yeah. that? So first of all, let's take with the easy stuff. There, there are some, some really interesting, um, uh, yeah, there, there are some interesting disputes in monetary policy, which is an area that I've worked on among other things over the years. And um, about the effectiveness of quantitative easing. I don't think I'm ever going to write a column about that, about <laughs> quantitative easing, right? Because uh, um, nobody, nobody knows what it's about. Um, it's, and, the, and in fact, the fact that it is a serious dispute is, a, um, is an indication that it's hard, that's technical. And um, actually there was a, uh, I really liked that there was an, a line, didn't like everything about it, but the Washington Post had an editorial about some of these disputes about whether the package is too big. And they said, uh, the public can't be expected to adjudicate this dispute, right? This is a, uh, you can get Larry Summers and me debating in a, in a seminar, <laughs> online seminar, fine. Uh, but to expect then people to be able to tell uh, really that, okay, so, so it, and what you want to, you don't want to argue these things out in, in, a, in, in, in on the op-ed pages simply because that's placing unreasonable expectations. But there's plenty of things that are perfectly straightforward. Like, uh, hey, we can cut child poverty in half quite easily. Uh, uh, that's that's something that you should be doing. So stay with the easy stuff. Um, writing in English, yeah. Uh, and when I was, I, I learned a little bit of the craft here. And early on, I think I did a fair number of columns where I would introduce a term and and try to define it. And, and um, the uh, that's very rarely a good idea. Just explain what you're talking about, right? Just go to it. Uh, don't uh, don't use uh, uh, technical language because it's uh, you know it's, technical language is a shorthand for people who are going to be spending a lot of time within a, a field. But just explain what you're talking about. And and you know, writing in English is um, is hard. It's I, I know quite a few people in the economics profession who are good writers um, in their in their domain who write, who have written some really terrible op eds because they just haven't figured out how to communicate with people who don't have them who, who didn't go through four years of graduate school. Um, the, uh, yeah, being, the, then the other two are where you get really, I think, more controversial. Uh, uh, should I simply say uh, uh, Paul Ryan's budget plans are a really bad idea? Uh, or should I say that he's faking it? 
you know, and I, I think that you're not doing, being fair to your readers if you don't convey the reality. When, when someone, which, by the way, it's important also not to do that when you simply disagree. So I may disagree about some things on, on involving fiscal policy or, or housing policy, or, uh, but, uh, but I, I try to make a distinction between people who I regard as flim flam man, like someone like Paul Ryan, uh, or someone who I think I just disagree with, uh, currently Larry Summers. Uh, the, um, so, but when it is just that these people are not being honest, then I think you, should, you, you want to say that. Um, and then, of course, the question of you know, why, uh, look, we're writing about pol political economy of, uh, of the United States. Uh, it's not at all, uh, again, it's unfair to your readers not to talk about what's driving this. If you want to know why, why do people keep saying the tax cuts pay for themselves? Uh, it's, it, if you don't use uh, some version of the old uh, Upton Sinclair line, it's difficult to get a man to, uh, uh, to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Uh, you're, not being, you're not being fair to your readers. Of course, these things are kept alive because it's in the interest of some people to keep them alive. Do you identify with a particular political party? Um, well, strictly speaking, I'm not allowed to. You know, the, uh, the Times, <laughs> uh, Times rules prohibit uh, explicit endorsements of candidates, uh, which is actually for a reason. That that's so that they, you don't have you know, uh, uh, John Smith of the New York Times in an op-ed column says vote for candidate you know, for Congressman Bombfog. And then people say the New York Times has endorsed congressmen. So they, you know, endorsements are a prerogative of the uh, of the paper, and not a, you have to steer clear of being that uh, that explicit. I mean, it's obvious where I am politically is uh, is center left. I'm a I'm a social democrat, as the Europeans would say. I think that there's a lot to be said for a market economy, but there's also a lot to be said for a very strong safety net and for a lot of policies to uh, of regulation, policies to mitigate inequality, and so on. Now, as it turns out, the U.S. Democratic Party, uh, much more so than it, it was even, uh, even than, you know, when Bill Clinton was president, the U.S. Democratic Party now is, is effectively a social democratic party. It's not that different from, in, in terms of its, its goals, its orientation from European center-left parties. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's, that political space is where I'm comfortable. Thank you. Um, so let's go back to this idea of people you disagree with. Um, I know when I go on MSNBC that I am talking to minded people, to people who are going to be inclined to yeah. agree with me. And the same is probably true for you when you're writing for the New York Times. It's people who are um, more inclined to agree with your point of view. What I'm concerned about is how to engage in productive conversations with people on the other side, people who are watching Fox News, reading Breitbart. Um, and I, I know you've already said there isn't really a good answer to how to do this, but the media is, to me, the fundamental bulwark of democracy. And in the marketplace of ideas, supposedly truth emerges. So how, how big a role do you think the media has in affecting perceptions of economic policy and political reality, and how can we encourage people to read both sides of a story? Well, okay, lots of people are not going to are not going to be reachable. It's just that's just 
uh, reality. Um, if there's someone who gets their whole news diet from Fox, um, then I, I, I don't know any way to, to, to reach uh, across that divide. Um, the, there are people uh, who will respond to some degree to, uh, you know, to, to a real argument. And they, the thing to do is to, uh, um, I think, to, to be inclusionary when you can. Don't say, you know, every, everybody who disagrees with me is evil. That's, uh, that's, that's not true. Only, only some of the people who disagree with me are evil. Um, and, um, the, um, uh, and to, particularly there, there are times that the media can have an enormous impact uh, because there is this middle ground. Um, and sometimes that's uh, for good, and sometimes it's it's for bad. I mean, the one of the areas I talk about in arguing with zombies, one of the whole uh, there's a whole subsection of the book called "Very Serious People," which is about that period uh, in the early uh, 2010s uh, when an obsession with the budget deficit was, to an unfortunate degree, was bipartisan. It was people on both sides of we're saying it because everybody in the media was saying it was the that it was just reported as fact that we had a serious deficit problem, even though the evidence did not support that assertion at all. So this was a case of the media creating a false consensus that actually did uh, substantial damage. So you can try to fight against that. You can try to make sure that we don't uh, report as fact things that are that are not true. And and uh, yeah, occasionally. I, there, you know, there are forms of argument I don't like much. The, the, the old, uh, you said this, but now you, uh, now you said that. Um, you know, the fact that if somebody having said different things at different times in their career, that doesn't, um, that's often unproductive, but it is sometimes useful. Um, hypocrisy, pointing out hypocrisy, uh, does seem to have some impact on voters, saying, look, this, this candidate who now says that the, that the deficit is an existential threat under Biden didn't seem to care about deficits at all under Trump. That, that's the kind of thing that can matter. A lot of what you've been saying throughout this conversation has been so useful for, I know will be so useful for my generation in terms of just how to write, how to communicate. And as a student, what I've noticed is that there sometimes isn't enough cultivation of critical thinking in the classroom. And that is, you know, teachers kind of feed us information, we take a test, and then that's kind of the end of the learning process for whatever class it may be. Do you have any thoughts on teaching my generation in general and how to teach people to think critically? Oh wow! Um, I mean, I don't have any deep insights into that. I mean, uh, there. Um, it's interesting. And what I, uh, I do think that it's. I, I one thing I, I may be wrong about this, but it, it may be self-serving. But I think it would be helpful if students were required on occasion to, uh, to do something like what I do in my uh, in, in my day job here, which is to write. Uh, um, a 800 word uh, essay about a, a real issue and try to get, get, get your arms around it. It's state it in plain English. Uh, don't rely on assertions of authority. Just how do, how do you convey something like that? I think that we, we probably, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how we're, how, how, we're doing it at this point, but I think we probably are still too much. Uh, I understand the temptation, um, to, we, but we still do have too much. Uh, uh, there's specific 
things that you need to be tested on. And of course, you know, that, that's not totally irrelevant, but I, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a co-author of, uh, of, of an economics textbook, principles book, uh, which is uh, where I believe we're number three in the national market. But anyway, the, um, and there are parts of that book that I've been, I spent, we've, we've been, the uh, you know, first edition was 15 years ago, um, that I spent uh, always, I said, you know, do we really need to go through all of this stuff about elasticity? Uh, and the answer is, well, unfortunately, um, people, instructors, want to do that. That's a kind of set piece thing they do. They, they, they devote a class to, to elasticity and we've got to, um, and uh, at that one level, I having you know, taught classes myself, I haven't done principles for a while, but yeah, I understand that. But on the other hand, yeah, we, we still, we, there's a little bit, there's a fair bit of stuff in the teaching of certainly of economics that's kind of like the, the required figures in Olympic figure skating. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you might be too young for that, but anyway, the, uh, um, yeah, the stuff that that I guess I understand why it's there, but boy, uh, the audience finds it incredibly boring. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, is actually a skater. So. <laughs> I used to be um, a skater. I, I um, but I, I do remember. Yeah, I, I do understand when I'm one of those people who uh, understands what you're talking about when you say that. And I think the idea of writing an 800 word column, you know, every now and then is is definitely a good idea and something I've been trying to do lately. And it's you know, it's a good exercise and it's something that. You know, we, we write essays for for professors. We we do these multiple choice tests, but there isn't much, I don't know, like like self um like like self planning with these essays and and kind of forming your your ideas. And it's yeah, I think your idea would definitely be beneficial in the classroom. And I I know you've also taught um an, a master class, and it's something that I've watched. And the ads for master class are riveting, so it like definitely pulls you in. But what was your experience like doing that? Was was the reason why you agreed to do that to kind of convey economics in a more simple way? Well, okay. So the first thing is the masterclass had already done a bunch. And, uh, you know, I saw when I saw that uh, some of the people have been doing it, I sort of said, well, if it's good enough for Helen Mirren, it's good enough for me. Right. You know, so <laughs> um, so I, I thought I could have some fun and, and hopefully convey stuff in an interesting fashion. And uh, it was, uh, I, I thought I enjoyed I, I enjoyed doing it, although it was pretty intense. Um, you, uh, uh, and I actually also I had a little bit of a different experience, right? My, my life uh, is is normally spent in in uh, in messy offices, uh, that, and uh, the uh, so you go off, and of course, the what looks like this very cozy uh, bookish space was actually a couple of bookshelves set up in a corner of a of a warehouse in, in Brooklyn, but the. Uh, <laughs> Um, but the, uh, the, um, the experience was good and they, they did it well. I mean, they, they, uh, they had it, it was actually done as a dialogue, but then mostly edited so that it was only my voice, but, and so that actually worked. I don't know. It's just a trying something different and it seems to have, um, you know, obviously, uh, I've been surprised at how many people have seen it. So trying something different, um, uh, and. It, we're all we're all searching, particularly in this new world of uh, maybe not new for you, but still, you know, this world of streaming and all of that. The um, we're still trying to find out ways of communicating, um, and not we're, we're still trying to to figure out what the effective ways of of 
teaching communicating are because a lot of traditional education is still you know it's uh, it's still following uh structures that date back to the middle ages and there have to be at least some things we want to do differently i totally agree um one last question to end the podcast um are you optimistic about the future do you think that we can get rid of the zombies that you're talking about oh well you never get rid of the zombies that's sort of in their nature you can only hope to diminish their influence um the truth is uh i am um I'm on a knife edge about the future. Uh, I'm both hopeful and terrified. Um, there's a clear chance that we fall off the edge into an abyss. I mean, you know, we kind of mob storm the capital. Um, uh, but there's also a clear possibility that we're really making a turn towards a fairer, more equitable, more rational um, set of, of policies and a, and a politics that is less about grievance and more about actually doing good things. Um, and kind of depends on you know, how I'm feeling on a given more. I mean, the truth is I'm always, I'm always a, a extremely hopeful and, and terrified at the same time. This is a, uh, you know, there, you, you, it's a cliche that we live in a time of transition and choice and change, but the truth is that it's real this time. The, the, uh, the one thing I think is it seems extremely unlikely is that we'll just sort of coast along as we are now. We're either going to fall off one edge into the abyss or we're going to get into a much better place. And I'm just hoping that it goes the right way. This was a wonderful conversation. And Jill, I don't know if you want to wrap up the conversation. I just want to say thank you for all you do, not just in being with us today, but all the insights that you offer every week uh, to anyone who's willing to sit down and read really thoughtful words. Um, we appreciate all you do and thank you for spending the time with us. Well, thank you. Good luck. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.